The book of Acts is the account of the early church of Jesus Christ. The author, Luke, shows us the church together and the church in the world. The church together and the church in the world, back and forth. To be a Christian is to be the church together and the church in the world. Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus and the call to be Christ's witnesses here, there, and everywhere. The gospel of redemption considers when good people happen to bad things. Redeemed people bring gospel ministry and word and deed into every aspect of life and existence. And so then we see the church together and the 10-day wait between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and the spirit descending to earth. And they commune with God in prayer, neither glamorizing the good old days nor dwelling on past failures, but the church moving forward. And so then in Acts 2, we see the account of the church in the world in a major way with Pentecost. The dramatic demonstration of the divine intent to minister the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then again, we go back and see the church together giving and receiving grace, sharing together in the means of grace, the words, sacraments, and prayer from which burst forth the caring for others and the generous and wise stewardship. And then Acts 3 recounts the church back out into the world. And the first miracle, healing the beggar at the beautiful gates. And that comes with the first persecution of the church. And the political power play by the Sanhedrin, but the apostles show grace under fire with a bold proclamation of Christ. And then at the end of chapter 4, we see the church together again, worshiping God and stewarding their resources to care for those in need, a picture similar to the end of chapter 2. And that spills over into chapter 5 in an account of Ananias and Sapphira, but then the church goes back out into the world, sharing the good news and healing many, and that brings greater persecution from the world. The church in the world, even doing good things, will bring persecution. And then the chapter six has the church together again to ordain the first deacons, to share the leadership load with the ministry of mercy and stewardship led by the deacons with the ministry of the word and prayer led by the elders. And the result is that the word of God spreads with the church into the world, which leads again to a major persecution in the stoning of Stephen and this church scattered. But even this persecution is part of God's providence. And so the gospel spreads with Philip ministering to Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we have a parallel conversion of a sort with Peter and Paul. Paul converted on the road to Damascus and Peter converted to fully embrace Gentiles with a vision on the rooftop at Caesarea. The account of Peter's vision is repeated three times because it's so important, not least of which means that we now get to eat bacon because everything's better with bacon. And all of that from chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 are the church in the world because of the stoning of Stephen, scattered by persecution. And so then the church shows the church together again. And even as the church is scattered further and further apart, we see the church is together. And two locations are featured, the church at Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel, and then the church at Antioch in the northern parts of Israel. And as the church prays together, the Lord miraculously rescues Peter from prison 
and brings divine judgment on his enemies so that the word of God continues to increase and spread. At this moment, we are the church together. Later, we will be the church in the world. Our passage today is of great encouragement and wisdom for us today. Are you ready to hear it? Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. Our Lord, we are ready to hear your word. You have made us ready. And there is nothing better than to hear your word read, to have it proclaimed that you might speak to us, to transform us, to point us to Christ, so that in Christ and filled with your spirit, we might go forth changed and to bring a gospel of change and transformation. And so we do pray for your spirit to bear witness to this reading and preaching of your word. So it is we also pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, it was at the beginning of Acts that Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was not a request. It is a divinely ordained reality. You will be my witnesses. The Lord is determined to make it so. And the first part of the book of Acts, the first seven chapters, gives the account of the witness in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 12 then give the account of the witness in Judea and Samaria. And starting this morning with chapter 13, we now get the account of the witness to the world. Listen to how it begins from God's word. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, They placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues of John, with John, uh, who was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Barjesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight in El- to El- at Elamas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light or the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. 
Our mission statement as Westminster Church is reaching people to know Christ, equipping believers to obey Christ, and sending disciples to advance Christ's kingdom. Reaching, equipping, and sending. As it turns out, that's the same thing that the church at Antioch was doing. The opening verse tells us about five people who were prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch, the ordained leaders. When the Bible gives names, it is usually for a reason. In this case, the names tell us that this church was reaching a very diverse population. In between Barnabas, who's named first, and Saul, who's named last, are three very different people. Simeon, called Niger. The word Niger is the Greek and Latin word for black, describing his dark complexion. Lucius of Cyrene, a Latin name that ironically means light or white. And he is from the capital city of Libya. His name means he was probably raised in Roman culture. And then Menaean, a Greek form of the Hebrew, Menachem. He was probably a Jew from Greek culture. And he was raised with Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, who ruled a fourth of the Roman Empire, which means that Menaean was a prince. He was royalty. And here he was, not only hanging out with the common folk, but a leader in the church and leading by example a church that was reaching a diversity of ethnicity, culture, and class. In that day and age, simply people like this simply did not hang out together. Today in America and in the Western world, it is much more commonplace, in large part because of the Christian sense of seeing all people as bearing God's image and all people equally needing Jesus Christ and that we have a unity in that Christ. And so a reaching church is supposed to be a diverse church in its people and in its leadership. And so consider the leadership at Antioch has a black guy, a white guy, a Greek Jew raised as royalty, a Hebrew Levite, and a former Pharisee, all who are equally saved and called by Jesus Christ. Now we read about the story of the church at Antioch in chapter 11. And in a very short time, this church has flourished so much that they are able to send a sizable amount of financial support to those who are going to be suffering from a famine. And there were multiple prophets and teachers who lead the equipping of the church, not just Barnabas and Saul, but the whole team of leaders, what today we would call the session, the elders chosen by the people who lead in the evangelistic reaching but also in the equipping of the church. A church that is strong is able then to be a sending church, not only attending to our own needs, but sending people to attend to the needs of others as we see Antioch do. In fact, the words mission and missionary come from the Latin word meaning to send. Verse two tells us how the sending started. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice that the Lord didn't call them from a strategic planning strategy session, right? But from the church doing the primary thing that the church does, worship the Lord. 
When the church comes together as we are doing now, the Lord speaks to his people and the people speak in response to the Lord in the rich dialogue of worship. As such, it is God-centered worship and not man-centered worship that not only honors the Lord, but is truly best for us. Man-centered worship that seeks to make us feel good or connects with us or helps us get in touch with our emotions is popular, but is the opposite of biblical worship that focuses on the reverence and awe of the holy God. In the early church, there were still new revelations that were coming through the apostles and designated prophets and teachers of the church. Today, God has fully given us revelation as the whole Bible. When we ask, what does God want me to do with my life? The answer is, read God's word and apply it to your life. What we often want is for God to give us some sort of extra biblical revelation, something aside from the revealed word of God, and a revelation that would be something we like. As we saw earlier in Isaiah 30, rebellious people don't want a prophetic word that tells us what is right and true and holy, but say, tell us pleasant things. Tell us smooth things. We feel like God has answered our prayers when we have a peace and comfort about a certain decision. Well, there is nothing comfortable about what the Lord calls Barnabas and Saul to do. It would be much more comfortable for them to stay right where they are and to build a megachurch. When we ask the Lord to give us direction, do we really want an answer? Knowing that the answer will be filled with what is right, true, and holy, and makes us depend on the Lord. It is much easier and natural to rest on a decision that we make that gives us peace and comfort. Even cherry-picking a Bible verse to convince us that it's God's will. God's will is going to put us on a path that will demand faith in Christ and repentance of self. Instead of getting what we want, it will mean giving sacrificially. Instead of saying, well, the Lord wants me to be happy, so I've decided to abandon this relationship, take the cushy job, and not confront the actual problem. (laughs) Tell us pleasant things, smooth things. Well, the Lord doesn't want us to be happy. The Lord wants us to be holy, And from a holiness that is found only in him that will then result in an inexpressible joy and a peace that passes all understanding. So the church at Antioch sends Barnabas and Saul. But verse 4 reminds us who truly does the sending. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. It is the Holy Spirit of the living God who does the sending and puts in people and places to play their part. Successful missions doesn't come by our own strength and ingenuity. It comes by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not a power that we are to seize and use. The Holy Spirit is a person who seizes and uses us. Back in chapter 8, we met Simon the sorcerer who wanted to get a hold of the Holy Spirit to use his power. But we see here the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us. And so it is the Holy Spirit who sends Barnabas and Saul to Cyprus. It's an island west of Antioch. And Acts 4 tells us that Barnabas 
is from Cyprus, which means he's going to a place with which he's familiar. And who do they have with him? John, who is John Mark, the author of the gospel. John Mark is also a cousin of Barnabas, which means he probably also is from Cyprus. And they are going to places where the gospel has already been shared. And so missions is about sending, but missions isn't always about going to some completely strange, unknown place. In fact, one of the things that we're going to see over and over in the remainder of Acts is that it is the same messengers going with the same message, but it is ministered differently in different places. A key part of evangelism is knowing the people and learning the culture. We don't go in thinking we know everything. We go knowing that we know the gospel and we discern how to share that good news effectively and honestly wherever our mission field may be. And so mission is also not about altar calls, getting people saved and then moving on. The Holy Spirit has done the sending, but the Holy Spirit also does the equipping. The team of teachers will go to places and to people who have already received Christ as Lord and Savior so that they can do further equipping, further strengthening, training to help the Christians on Cyprus to grow in the faith and knowledge of Christ. Later, we're going to read that Paul's second missionary journey starts by him saying to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So sometimes missions also means equipping those who are already believers, to equip them further. But of course, there is the effort of reaching. They don't just go to the Christians in Cyprus. Verse 5 emphasizes that they go to the Jewish synagogues in the towns throughout Cyprus in order to present the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. So the Holy Spirit does the sending and the equipping and the reaching. If anyone is to be receptive to the word of God, it is because the Holy Spirit makes it so. Now, sometimes at the outset, it seems like someone is ready to receive the word of God, and other times, not so much, as we will see from the rest of this passage. We see the interaction of Saul and the sorcerer, and also Paul and the proconsul. The sorcerer is a surprise. The proconsul is planned, all of which makes for a nice alliteration. And I emphasize the names because the passage does. As they travel across the island, they come to Paphos at the invitation of the proconsul who is named Sergius Paulus, which means the proconsul essentially has the same name as the apostle. Saul's name change to Paul is recorded in verse 9. The proconsul has Paul or Paulus as his last name of sorts. And he was a proconsul, which means he was a Roman official. Verse 8 tells us that he invited them because he wanted to hear the word of God. How's that for a divinely ordained invitation, right? A high-ranking Roman official who invites you because he wants to hear the word of God. Well, that's a great opportunity. But it doesn't come easily because one of the proconsul's attendants is a sorcerer, and he's a false prophet named Bargesus. He's also known as Elamas, a word meaning sorcerer. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary notes this. There were many like him in the ancient world. 
They would get into positions of power because they pretended to have special insight into what was going to happen and could offer wise advice to those who made decisions. This man gained the proconsul's confidence, and when Barnabas and Saul came along, Elamas recognized that if Sergius Paulus paid attention to them, his own days as an influential person would be numbered. As a result, he opposed the gospel and did everything he could to turn the proconsul from it. The name Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Now, Jesus was a popular name, and so it's possible that he's simply the son of someone named Jesus. Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew, Joshua. So maybe his dad was Jesus or Joshua of some kind. But it's also possible that because the gospel of Jesus Christ was spreading, and people were beginning to regard the name of Jesus as someone important, that he is calling himself this to draw more attention to himself. It also makes the words of Paul to him a bit more pointed. In verse 10, he says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Paul may be saying, in effect, you call yourself a son of Jesus, but you're really a son of the devil. Notice that the Holy Spirit is all over this. We are told that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit when he looked straight at the sorcerer and said these words. And then we're told that the hand of the Lord immediately caused the sorcerer to be blind for a time. And then we're told that the proconsul believed. Now some question the validity of the belief whether he truly came to faith, because we don't see a long-term view and don't see whether or not his life was truly changed. Perhaps he was just caught up in the moment and made a profession of faith, but it wasn't true faith that was a lasting faith. It's the kind of thing that we see all the time in the modern world. But that does not seem to be the case here. This account seems to be about the success of the gospel ministry. And so I find that I tend to agree with the commentator, John Stott, who says, Luke surely intends us to view Sergius Paulus as the first totally Gentile convert who had no religious background in Judaism. In fact, notice that verse 12 concludes, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Doesn't say that he was amazed at the teacher of the Lord. Doesn't say that he was amazed at the power that went along with the teaching. He was amazed at the teaching itself, the truth of the word of God revealed, the good news that Jesus died and rose from the dead victorious over sin and offers freely salvation that he has accomplished. So what are we to take from all this? Well, I appreciate the recent wisdom of Trevin Wax, who said, go to the Bible looking for God. Find him, and application will follow. But go looking for application, and you may miss both. So we don't want to do an instant application. This passage does not say that you should go out and tell people with whom you disagree that they are a child of the devil. There's enough of that already on social media, I suppose. And as we saw earlier, this passage also does not say that you should pray for the Lord to give you some direction outside of what is revealed in Scripture, direction that will simply give you peace and comfort. What this passage does say is that God is amazing, 
The proconsul was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Are you amazed at the teaching about the Lord? When was the last time that something about the Lord revealed in Scripture simply knocked your socks off? When we are enamored with ourselves or with the world, we put our focus there. When we engage in genuine God-centered worship, we put our focus on the Lord. The proconsul wanted to hear the word of God. Do you want to hear the word of God? When was the last time you simply couldn't wait to get some free time or you created some free time in order to hear the word? We are surrounded by sorcerers and false prophets, a world that keeps us from focusing on our faith in Christ and life gets overwhelming. When we take time regularly, whether we feel like it or not, and especially when not, to hear the word of God, then the Lord becomes overwhelming in our life. The church was, by the work of the Holy Spirit, reaching, equipping, and sending. Are you reaching, equipping, and sending? How might you fully prioritize being part of the church family in worship, discipleship, and service? The world will blind us to what is important, and we will find ourselves groping about seeking for someone, anyone to lead us, and we'll allow ourselves to be led anywhere. But when we understand that the Lord has set us apart for the work to which he has called us, then we are no longer blind, but can see the Lord leading us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Thanks be to God that our great God has set us apart. Our great God has spoken to us by his word. And so we worship the Lord with reverence and awe and with thanksgiving and praise. And may that truth set us free to do exactly that.